You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. We have the honor of hosting Ambassador Dory Gold as our guest today on our Code Red podcast. Ambassador Dory Gold, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and provide us with some insight into Israel's current state? My name is Dory Gold. During the 1990s, I served as Israel's ambassador to the United Nations, as well as a special envoy, the foreign policy advisor of the prime minister, to a number of Arab states. I had very close working relationship with various American secretaries of state. More recently, I was appointed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as Director General of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, precisely at the time when he was not only Prime Minister, but he was also the Foreign Minister of Israel. And therefore, in that capacity, I was basically running the ministry for him. And um, I was involved in breakthroughs of his, uh, particularly in Africa, where we broadened Israel's diplomatic contacts dramatically. President Trump has proven to be a true friend of Israel. In what way did ending the Iran deal help strengthen the American-Israeli relationship? From day one, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had serious doubts about the Iran deal. While there were, while there was a whole chorus in Washington extolling it as a brilliant case of diplomacy, Prime Minister Netanyahu had a very different view. Just look at some of the um, ways that this deal was structured. The uh, Iran deal had something called a sunset clause, something I've never heard of in international diplomacy. The sunset clause meant that at a certain time, seven years, 10 years, 13 years from the conclusion of the original deal, uh, its clauses would simply come to an end. It would no longer bind Iran in any way uh, with respect to the subjects of the, um, of the deal. So for example, if Iran was prohibited by the deal from um, enriching uranium or from making a new generation of centrifuges and installing them, those responsibilities would no longer exist. They'd be gone. So the first problem we had with the deal was this sunset clause, which meant maybe we buy security, maybe we buy security for the immediate term, but the next generation will have a nuclear-armed Iran. Second thing in the Iran deal was, for some reason, ballistic missiles, which carried nuclear weapons to their target, were not included. Now. I, when I was ambassador of Israel to the United Nations, one of the things I did was I monitored the monitors. My job was to look at what was happening with the weapons of mass destruction of Saddam Hussein of Iraq. And the United States government, back in 1991, reached a ceasefire with Saddam Hussein that was encapsulated in UN Security Council Resolution 687. In that resolution, it states specifically that all weapons of mass destruction are prohibited to Baghdad. Number one, no nuclear weapons. Number two, no chemical weapons. Number three, no biological weapons. And number four, no missiles beyond a range of 150 kilometers. Why 150 kilometers? Because less than 150 kilometers is considered to be an artillery weapon. It's like a howitzer. 
but beyond 150 kilometers, that is a real weapon of mass destruction. So the United States establishment, the international community, <clears throat> was used to the idea that when you say a country may not have weapons of mass, dis mass destruction, you better have a prohibition on its ballistic missile program. That didn't happen in the Iran deal. It's completely missing. So Iran, even today, even when it says it's bound by the deal, can start manufacturing missiles with ranges of 300 kilometers, 800 kilometers, 2,000 kilometers, whatever it wants. That is not a smart deal. Prime Minister Netanyahu is in Europe meeting with President Macron and Chancellor Merkel to convince them to reimpose sanctions on Iran. Do you think these meetings will have any success? Why is it crucial for these countries to reimpose sanctions, and what would be the consequences if they did not? Well, as I said earlier, one of the missing components of the Iran deal is the issue of ballistic missiles. Now, presently, Iran's missiles can fly around 2,000 kilometers, 800, 900 miles. That means that from a launch site in Iran, they're able to hit Israel, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, maybe Egypt. But as they work on their ballistic missile program, the next line of countries that will come into the Iranian crosshairs are the countries of Europe. They'll be able to hit Italy, France, fly across the English Channel, hit London. That's coming, and that may be only a matter of a year or two away. So the uh, lacuna in the Iran agreement first hit Europe before they hit the United States. I suspect they'll be able to launch an intercontinental ballistic missile that could hit New York, could hit Philadelphia, Washington, probably, probably within 10 years. The U.S. Embassy recently moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Can you talk through what this means for the Israeli people? You know, the best way to understand the significance of this is to do a flashback to the year 1949, at the end of the first Arab-Israeli war. We had our government, the Israeli government, functioning in Tel Aviv. And Jerusalem had been a center of a lot of battles and therefore our main governmental bodies were not there. In 1949, our first Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, stood up in the Knesset, that's Israel's parliament, and gave a very powerful speech that everybody was noting. It was well known in the international community that Israel wanted to move its seat of government from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And there were people in the British Foreign Office, in the U.S. State Department, who warned Ben-Gurion, don't do it. And Ben-Gurion simply thought about this rare moment in Jewish history where he would be able to establish Jerusalem again as our historical capital. So in his speech, he made reference to the Bible, and he spoke about the fact that the Jewish people, since the days when they sat by the waters of Babylon, had not forgotten about Jerusalem. Therefore, he could never forget about Jerusalem. And he declared from the Knesset that Jerusalem would be Israel's capital. 
And that was Israel's responsibility, and that was his responsibility to make that determination and that switch. Where countries want to put their embassies is their choice. Israel believes that since its capital is in Jerusalem, all the embassies should be in Jerusalem. Today, when a new ambassador comes to Israel, the Russian ambassador, the American ambassador, and they present their credentials, they present their credentials to the president of Israel, where? In Jerusalem. And um, in multiple ways, Jerusalem's centrality for Israel's government can be seen. So I believe that finally moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is the right thing to do. Moreover, it's based on bipartisan legislation, because back in 1995, two very important American politicians, Senator Bob Dole and Senator Tom Daschle, sponsored the Jerusalem Embassy Act which said that the U.S. should move its embassy to Jerusalem. So that's something which is ingrained in American law, and it's ingrained in the history of the Jewish people. So there's almost no reason why not move the embassy. How does this impact the relationship between Israel and the United States? The United States is very significant for Israel for multiple reasons. We're allies. During the Cold War, every time we got our hands on the latest Russian weapon system, a MiG-21 fighter complete, the first thing we did is we called the United States and said, here, have a present. And uh, that's how we operated all those very difficult years. And therefore, um, by moving the embassy, by being the first country to move the embassy, I believe that symbolizes the special tie, the special relationship between the United States and the state of Israel. In your book, The Fight for Jerusalem, you mentioned that the United Nations cannot be trusted. What role does the UN play in Israel, and why would you consider them untrustworthy? Well, let's go back to the first Arab-Israeli war in 1948. You might remember, the UN adopted a resolution in 1947 which contained the partition plan, the partition of the British mandate for Palestine into two states, a Jewish state on the one hand and an Arab state on the other hand. Now the Arabs never took up the offer of the United Nations that they should have their own state. Instead what they did is they invaded the state of Israel. And that invasion wasn't just Arabs living in this area. That invasion involved five Arab states with their armies that were well-trained. Now, since the partition plan for British Mandatory Palestine contained an idea, which we weren't thrilled about, for internationalizing Jerusalem, creating what was called in Latin a corpus separatum, a separate entity, you might expect 
that the UN would fulfill its responsibilities and put in a UN force to defend the people of Jerusalem from the invading Arab armies. Well, guess what happened? The United Nations, in the words of Ben-Gurion, didn't lift a finger to defend the Jews, to defend Israel from this invasion. And as a result, it was the underground armies at the time, the Haganah, the Palmach, Etzel, that all struggled to defend Jerusalem, but not the UN. The UN only disappointed the people of Israel by its inaction. How has the relationship between the U.S. and Israel improved with the new administration? If I had to give a list of how relations have improved between Israel and the United States under President Trump, I'd have to have a lot of paper available. The relationship has been revolutionized. The fact that President Trump finally executed what all previous administrations had promised moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is huge. It's something that can't be described. It's something that Israelis on both sides of the political spectrum are uh, amazed by. But um, there are other aspects of the, of the strategic military relationship that are very important. For example, the decision of the Trump administration to pull out of the Iran deal. The Iran deal was a disaster. It was horrible diplomacy. It was based on uh, assumptions that anybody who's been involved in diplomacy cannot accept. How can you have a special clause that says everything in this agreement fades away after a certain amount of time. How can you have something called a sunset clause by which understandings, commitments made by Iran just fade away after a certain amount of time? The Iran agreement reminds me of a carton of milk. You know, you go to the grocery store, you have to buy milk and it says on top, expires July 1st. Well, guess what? This agreement expires after 10 years or 13 years, depending on the issue. How can you build international security on an agreement that's like a carton of milk that just expires after a certain period of time? How can you build security on the basis of an agreement which doesn't even have ballistic missiles in it, like the older agreements that the U.S. used to have with Saddam Hussein? The fact that President Trump exited this bad agreement was considered by many Israelis to be an enormous uh, positive on his side and um, opens the opportunity for creating a better agreement in the future. Thank you for listening to Code Red with Secure America Now. We are the largest national security digital platform in the nation, dedicated to bringing critical security issues to the forefront of the American debate. For more information, visit our website at www.secureamericanow.org.